Welcome to podcast episode number five. We are currently in episode, you could say, number two of a series on the doctrines of grace. So hopefully you have listened to the previous podcast episode where we talked about the doctrine of total depravity. Um, if you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend you just to stop this one right now, go back and listen to that one. Um, if you have an understanding of total depravity, then listen, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, uh, we personally uh, were unashamedly uh, Calvinistic. Uh, we, we totally believe in the Reformed doctrines of grace. Um, and uh, we kind of hashed that out or explained how that historically came to be about. So we're not going to really repeat ourselves in this one on, on how these doctrines, which we would say are biblical, came to be called the doctrines of Calvinism. Blah, 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 blah. So go back, listen to that, or do your own research if you want to know the, the history behind that. But we are going to be talking about the second, the second doctrine of, of grace, which is you know, labeled unconditional election. And you've probably heard the acronym TULIP. Uh, and so we're on the second one, the U, unconditional election. Uh, we can, you know, it's been called different things, but we'll just kind of stick with, <laughs> with that uh, title for this discussion. So, Adam, what feelings are mustered up in your soul when you think about unconditional election? <laughs> well, the the first thing I think that comes to mind as far as feelings go is thankfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that leads to, to joyful worship. Um, Amen. You know, we talked about last week how it fundamentally starts with us acknowledging through throughout the scriptures, but particularly highlighted in Romans 3, that we are totally and utterly sinful beings. Right. To our core, everything about us is sinful. That we can do no good and nobody seeks God. It's not just you and I or the listener, uh, you know, you as an individual, right? It's it's everybody that has ever existed, save for Jesus Christ, without, uh, that all of them, none of them seek after God. Uh, due to Adam, all of us are inherently sinful. Right. Like, to the core. And Romans 3 outlines that very well. So where does that leave us? That If, if we don't seek after God... That means that God has to seek after us. Right. And 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 this is so inherent uh, in in the New Testament. Everywhere you look, uh, you know, in, in Ephesians, in Romans one, uh, in John fifteen, it is it is Jesus that is acting in Hebrews, you know, Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith. Um, our our salvation is a gift. And we did not merit it. Right. And so that should leave us in a place of absolute worship and thankfulness. Right. And isn't that why these doctrines are called the doctrines of grace? Because they really exemplify how what we have in our salvation is is totally a gift. Right. We didn't do anything. Yeah. Like, like... That's grace. That's why these are called the doctrines of grace. That's why it leaves us in this, this just like utter thankful awe. It should it's just, we're just like we realize I did nothing. God chose me, 
by his sovereign will. He he made me, you know, he he regenerated my dead heart. He gave me the desires to seek him. He gave me his righteousness through faith, Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that I didn't I didn't contribute anything to it. Christ lived that life out perfectly, not me, not Adam, not you, not anybody. Anybody that's righteous in the eyes of God is uh, that righteousness is Christ's. And so there just is this this like yeah, this worship that should come out of this that God did everything for me. And that's what grace is. It's an it's unmerited favor and undeserved gift. Mm-hmm. And when we really do mean like like grace to the max, if that makes sense. Some people say, oh, yeah, we're saved by grace, but, you know, you know, you might do this or this or God, you know, they, they, they just kind of take away from grace. They define it a little bit differently. Yeah, it's an undeserved gift, but, yeah, you still have to do this and this and this and, you know, you got to merit it in some way or whatever they say. You know, who's they? I don't really know, but, <laughs> but nonetheless. Um, well, I mean, I think it's so counter to everything that we're used to. Right. Uh, you know, we work for our wages. Yep. Uh, we have to earn them. And we, d- there really isn't anything that's just given to us. I, even, even we understand that, you know, I mean, Christmas time is coming up. And there's going to be a lot of presents given to people, and those are gifts. And the person receiving didn't pay for them. But we understand as humans that the person who, uh, who is giving the gift had to work and earn that gift. Right. Or or they put in labor to create it, to make it. Yep. Um, and, you know, all, all of this ties back to the metaphor, you know, like Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death. So what do you earn when you sin? You earn a payment that is due to you of death. That is, that's what wages means. Yeah. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that that's, metaphor still stands because it, God had to pay the price to give us that gift. Yeah. And and that and that was done with Jesus's work on the cross, his burial and then his resurrection. So uh, we have to understand that uh, it is a gift to us and just like when we receive gifts at Christmas as the receiver we aren't paying for it. We aren't doing anything to merit it. Uh, we aren't doing anything to earn it. Uh, somebody else paid that price. Mhm. Right. So, to kind of transition into actually talking about this doctrine. One, it's a doctrine we see, uh, we'll call it again the doctrine of election. We'll, we see this throughout the whole Bible, really. Mm-hmm. Think about I mean, think about for a moment Abraham. Just a guy living his life, and God chose him out of nowhere. I mean, really read you know, Genesis 12. How abrupt that is. It's just, you know, we see a list of, of, of you know, a genealogy, really, of how, how Abraham comes from, from Noah. But then all of a sudden, it's just immediately starts where God, you know, comes to Abraham and, and chooses him and says, I, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. It's not like Abraham did anything. It's not like Abraham was some, you know, amazingly righteous guy. God chose to to uh, bless the world through Abraham, and that was really a choice made by the secret will of God that we really won't understand why he chose Abraham and not some other person living on the earth. 
but he chose Abraham. Mm-hmm. And and we see this through and through and through. Israel is God's chosen people. They're they're a people that aren't you know really an amazing type of people. They're small. They're weak. They're there's nothing crazy about them. They're they're not this super powerful force on the earth. But God chooses to use them, and and it's amazing. And then we see this all the way up into the New Testament. Jesus chooses his disciples. They didn't choose him. Yeah. And 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 then eventually brings us to our reality now, is that God chooses who he's going to show his grace to. He chooses who he's going to regenerate. He chooses who he's going to give his righteousness to and and reconcile uh, you know, to himself. And that's amazing. Yeah, and even all throughout the Old Testament, because some people will argue, oh, this is this is a new doctrine. No. And it's only in the new it's only in the New Testament. Well, first of all, even if it is only in the New Testament, that's perfectly okay. Right. Because it's still within scripture. Yep. But uh you know, just a quick search through the Old Testament for the term chosen people and it and it's all over the place. It's in Deuteronomy twice. It's in Second Kings. It's in Psalms. It's in Isaiah several times. It's in Nahum. It's in Habakkuk. It's in uh, Haggai. It's in Zechariah several times. Uh, and it, it's it's consistently throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And that's just the term chosen people, right? So here's the deal. Really, what this boils down to, if you're a Christian. You got to get to the point where you say, it's not that I don't believe in the doctrine of election. It's what do I believe about the doctrine of election? Because if you don't believe in the doctrine election, of election, then you don't believe in your Bible because it's everywhere. The words are used. I mean, it's, it's an explicit word used in the Bible. So it's a biblical word, which means it has biblical meaning, which means God put a meaning that he intended to, you know, it to mean, if that makes sense. Like, it means something. It's there. You can't miss it. It's everywhere in the Bible. And if you believe that the Bible is your ultimate authority, that it's the very words of God, then you have to realize that, or you have to really get to the point to where, okay, I acknowledge the fact that this is a doctrine in the Bible. That it's taught in the Bible. It's displayed in the Bible, quite frankly, everywhere. Okay, what does it mean? Should we, should we tell some people? Because we've, we've vaguely referenced that it's in places in the Bible. We've mentioned books, yep. but we haven't actually read any scripture that talks about right. it. Should, should we read some specifics um, just so that people understand exactly where we're coming from yeah. and where our references are? Okay, so we'll read some scripture, and then I'm going to read uh, the uh, what the Westminster, uh, Westminster uh, Confession states on the doctrine, and that confession really... You know, it's been formed over centuries, these, these, these confessional statements. So it really is a good summary of all that the Bible has to say on this doctrine. And so we'll read that, and then we'll just kind of go back to the scriptures and really hash it out. So go for it. Read some scripture to us, Adam. Well, um, I'm sure that you have a couple that come to mind. Oh, yes. Um, Indeed. Uh, last week, I'll, I'll let you look up the John 15 passage. Okay, yeah. Because uh, I'm going to talk just a, just a little bit. Um, last week, or maybe it was the week before, I had mentioned that, 
I like to explain to people that to help them understand the book of Romans and its layout, that the book of Romans hinges on uh, really three chapters. And again, th- this is kind of just my personal take on it, how I like to explain the book to people. Uh, there are certainly all of the chapters in the book are equally important. But I, 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 when I study the book of Romans, I see a tonal shift in three chapters, and that's chapter three, uh, where it begins to talk about um, total depravity, and then it leads all the way through talking about salvation and how salvation works into uh, chapter 8. And in chapter 8, there is a, a dramatic shift, and it starts out by saying that we are not, those who are in Christ are not condemned. And then it spends some time talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And from the second half of chapter 8 on, we begin to see this ramping up of a discussion about election. And election, the topic of election takes from uh, really the middle to the end of Romans 8 all the way through the end of Romans 11. Mm -hmm. So Paul dedicates uh, three and a half chapters of his book or his letter to the Romans on this topic. I mean, it's a huge chunk of the book. Right. And uh, then after that, he goes into, you know, in Romans 12, we start to see a, okay, now that, now that you've learned this, these doctrines, doctrines. here's some practical it's a big, application. There's a big therefore. For, yeah. Yep. For how to live. So um, I, I mean, we could we could spend weeks talking about Romans eight through eleven. Yeah, uh, and so I will definitely reference that a lot. But I'll let you hit the for the John passage. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's the clearest. It's, yeah, it is very ahead. clear, you know, and that's the thing we got to realize. I'm just going to give this little plug here for hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics again is maybe I haven't defined it yet on any of our episodes, but it's it's really the art or the science of biblical interpretation. How do I interpret the Bible to come to know what it is saying. God put a meaning in the text for us to know and for us to submit to. And so we use hermeneutical principles to come to know what is true or what the meaning is. You know, we incorporate uh, the original language into it. We incorporate the original historical context. Uh, we incorporate literary features. Uh, is this poetry, you know, the genres, is this poetry, is this wisdom, is this a, 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 is this a a prophecy is this a narrative is this you know is this just a a letter or an epistle you know what is this and so we got to realize you know we have all these hermeneutical principles but one you could say uh, a kind of a simple principle is you use explicit texts to interpret implicit texts uh, so there are some scriptures or some passages that are very very explicit and very very clear like, there's no other way to interpret this. And, you, you know, you kind of just, you, you, you close every door, you shut every window, and there's, you know, there's no way out of this meaning, really. Uh, it's, it's explicit. And then you have other texts that are like, well, I really don't know what is, is exactly saying here. I, you know, you could take it this way, you could take it this way. It's not really clear. Uh, but, you know, but I have this explicit understanding from this passage and I know that this is what is actually stated clearly, and then I use that if it's if it's a passage that are, you know are teaching you know on parallel things or on similar things or similar doctrines. You go, okay, I can use this explicit passage to interpret this this you know more implicit passage uh, or this hard to understand passage. So we use 
clearly stated passages to interpret hard to understand passages. That's just that's just common sense yeah, in the, a way. It's really you use sense. the Bible to interpret the Bible. Right. And it's very clear. And another another principle too is like, okay, you start with how does okay, if we're hung up on a word, let's say, maybe we're hung up on the word election. I don't know. Uh, you look at that word in the context of the letter or the book that it's in, if that makes sense. Like you start narrow. You have these concentric circles. So okay, I'm hung up on this word. What does this word mean? What does this word mean? And the context around this word in this maybe this sentence or this this passage or this paragraph, it's still not very clear. But the same word is used uh, three chapters later, let's say. Oh, and that context around it is a little bit clearer. And now I'm kind of starting to get an understanding of what this word probably means or how this author intends to use this word. Mm-hmm. But if it's still not clear and you still might want to go out, you go into another concentric circle. Okay, I'm going to go to uh, other uh, maybe books written by the same author. So maybe I'm in the book of Romans. Okay, I'm going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians because they're both written by Paul. Uh, and then you go a concentric circle outside of it. Maybe, okay, you're in the New Testament, so you stay in the New Testament. Uh, maybe you're in the Old Testament, so you stay in the Old Testament to, to go out a little bit further. Uh, and then eventually you get to the whole Bible because it's all the inspired word of God. To see all these things are used. Or maybe you go to similar literary genres. Uh, nonetheless, all that to say, you know, that is an introduction to read John 15 because it's a very explicitly stated text. That's, that's I said all that for that. <laughs> but I think it's important. Uh, listen, listen to this. No longer, I'll, I'll start in John 15, verse 15, and I'll read through verse 17 for you guys. And it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, talk about explicit. You did not choose me. You know, he could have left it at that and it would have been pretty clear. But he gives, you know, he uses the conjunction but to really show, he, he's closing the doors a little bit, Jesus is, when he's saying this. Uh, you did not choose me. We, we would get it there. That's all he has to say. But he goes a step further. But I chose you. Like, really shutting the doors on us now. Okay, I get it, Jesus. You chose me. I didn't choose you. And then he says, I, and I pointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Like, it's just... Right. And and that, that really takes care of it all, right? Because... Like even even sometimes people will come and they'll be like, well, of course God chose me, but but I made the choice to believe. No, no, no. no. Jesus right there says, "You did not choose me, right? I chose you, right? I mean that that is it. But if we need more evidence, right? Ephesians one three through six. Oh, listen to this language, guys. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he pre- He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us 
in the beloved. It is God that is acting there. Oh, constantly. Constantly. It's so clear. I just can't like my mind gets boggled how you how you could be a Bible believing Christian and not submit to that clarity. Like it's clear, guys. Mm-hmm. And when you really when you really get to the point to where you accept this doctrine, it's one of the most amazing doctrines that you can ever trust in, if that makes sense. God chose me. And if he chose me, like, it gives me security. We'll talk about that later with perseverance of the saints. But there's so many implications from it. It's so deep. It's so, it's, it strengthens your faith. It just brings you to worship. It's so amazing. Like, me? Yeah. And, and like, we can flip through all of the epistles in, in the New Testament and Paul's and or even Peter's introduction, uh, a lot of them contain a greeting like this. Right. Read it. Uh, or or they say things like, uh, like First Thessalonians one, verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you, con- constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit right. with full conviction. Right. Um, and so we see Paul do a couple of things, because even if he doesn't use the phrase he has chosen you or who chose you, uh, he'll say things in other epistles like we give thanks to God always for you. Yeah. Uh, well, why are you thanking God um, for for the saints? Right. If they, if election isn't true, you would thank the person for choosing God. Right. But we don't, and, and this, this There's concept, a level of pride in it too. Right. Oh, I There's, came, I chose God. I came to know him. I used my intellect, my reason to get to the point to realize, oh, God does exist. He did save me. He did die on the cross for me. I'm going to respond in faith by my own volition, my own will. I mustered this up in my own self because I'm autonomous or whatever you want to believe. It's about me. It's very prideful and very self-centered. You're right. And the flesh, don't forget this, the flesh, like we know this, is an opposition with God. It does not desire God. It It does not want God. What is it like? What was think about this, guys? What was the original temptation for Eve when Satan's tempting her and says, "You will be like God. Mm-hmm. You will be like God." That's the temptation. Our flesh wants to be like God, wants to be our own gods. It wants to be, you know, the word really is free. Right. Like you want to be free. You don't want to be constrained in any way. You don't want to be un- in, underneath anybody else's will. The flesh doesn't. The flesh wants to to live its life how it wants to live in any way it wants to live, and it doesn't want anybody to tell them that they can't live that way. That's what the flesh wants. And so this idea that no, there's there's a a will above your will, a sovereign will, the will of the God who created all things, who ultimately controls all things, who is above all things, who ordains all things. Uh, his sovereign will that that idea that that will trumps your will is. Horror, like the flesh hates that idea. So the flesh wants any way to think that it is actually free or autonomous. And it's just a delusion, really. Mm-hmm. It's a delusion. Right. You know, for a time, we convince ourselves that we are free. Deep down, we really know we're not. 
I mean, good grief, everybody dies. And it's not like, you know, some people will die in a car accident today. I don't think they woke up and go, you know, I think I'm going to choose to die in this car accident today. No. Mm-hmm. It's like there's so many things you can't control. You know you're not free, ultimately. You right. know that you will succumb to wills outside of yours. And... Death and taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Another another verse. Think of First Peter one. Oh, it was just there. Oh, well, good grief. <laughs> if that's not evidence that the spirit's working through us, then. <laughs> uh, you want to read, or do you want me to read? You go for it. Okay. So I think there's a couple things here, and we're definitely going to come back to First Peter one when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. Oh yeah. Um. So, uh, because, you know, why, why, do we, why do we look at Peter in this? Well, we talked about Jesus. We've showed you that Jesus said it. We've showed you that Paul says it repeatedly. Yeah. And, that, and we're just doing a cursory glance there. Yeah, yeah. We haven't even dived into the actual text of Romans 8 through 11. We just mentioned it, right? So, but, and so the, if you want to attack Paul because for some reason you don't like Paul or you, you want to refuse that, that Jesus said it in John 15, yep. well, here's Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, uh, so what does this term dispersion mean? It's talking about the Jews um, who were persecuted and and sent out into the surrounding areas. So, um, but what? But the. And so if you're questioning what that term is, but the, the key term there is to those who are elect yeah. exiles. And then if you jump down to verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope oh, through yes. the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused. He has caused. Like... Who? God. And, oh, man. It really is. It does put a big burden on my shoulders because it's like, how clear do you want it to be? Really? Mm-hmm. I mean... And, and Peter doubles down on this in Second Peter yeah, 1. Yeah, of course. Because he goes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us his own, or who called us to his own glory and excellence. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. He called you. Yep by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Yep. It's amazing. And so, okay, we'll, we'll have that suffice right now for a, a preliminary scripture reading. I'm going to read how the Westminster Confession states the doctrine. Do you want to give a little background on what the... On, the brief history of where that uh, confession came from for those who may be unfamiliar with it. <laughs> I couldn't give a brief history of it actually right now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
if you want to do uh, your own research on where the Westminster Confession comes from, please do it. Uh, at one point I did. I can't state it to you right now at this moment. But it is a very reliable uh, confession. Yeah, now, I mean, it's it's been around for... A while. I'm not a church historian, but right. it's, it's considered the Christian confession. Yeah. The, the standard by which... You're right. Like, if you don't believe the things that are stated in this, you're probably not... A Christian, right? Now you're, you're falling into some other camp, right? That's not to say that you you don't you know you don't understand or like. I guess you don't have to like fully understand all these doctrines that are displayed in it. But if you openly disagree with what's stated, then there's a problem because these are these are doctrines that have been solidified as biblical for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yeah, you know, theologians and scholars have been. Working through the the scriptures and interpreting interpreting the scriptures for centuries and centuries, and so this is kind of a, you know, the product of that. Now again, it's uh, it's a confession, so it's not the Bible itself. It's not an inspired mm-hmm. word, but it is a very, uh, you know, condensed. You know, this is what we believe the Bible says about this doctrine, or about this. And so, I'm going to read what the Confession states about this doctrine of election. And it's a little bit long, so bear with me here. Listen closely to the words. You know, again, it's very, you know, systematic. It's very, uh, every word that they use here to display this has, you know, is is well thought out, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a lot here, but... Nonetheless, here it says, By the, de- the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men, thus predestinated and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, in the secret counsel of his good pleasure, of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any uh, other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace." As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto, whereby they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only." The rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Again, we see just by the old English that this is indeed a little bit old. Um, right. It's been around a while. <laughs> right. And and I appreciate you clarifying. You know, I mean, it's not... It's not scripture. Right. You know, this is a group of of men who came together, a group of theologians who came together and and really debated and hashed out, uh, what does the Bible say 
about what we have to believe. Yeah. And they generated this confession off of it. Right. It's very lengthy. Um, but, uh, and, you know, you might be thinking, well, I'm an Arminius and I'm listening to this and you just told me that if I don't agree with that, that I'm not a Christian. Uh, and maybe that's a strong word. Maybe what I should say is that it's, it's, it's time to evaluate why you are in disagreement with something that is considered orthodox Christian faith and that stands opposed to what is in the scripture. Right. Like, why, why, did, why is your position such? And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of people uh, struggle with pride in the area of election. And also, we talked about this before, it's counter to our, to our experience of salvation. Right. Because when, as we describe uh, our, our salvation to others, as we give our testimonies to our friends or family or brothers and sisters in Christ or to churches, new churches that, that we may be joining, uh, as, as we share our testimony, we say things like, uh, I gave my life to Jesus or I realized that I was a sinful person and, and I repented. Well, these are all statements of fact uh, from our perspective, but those statements of fact leave out God's perspective. They, they don't tell the whole story of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's why we need to submit or bow down to the scriptures, understanding that what God is revealing to us is is true knowledge, is true truth. It's right. It's a right uh, interpretation of our reality as God made it. Mm-hmm. So to think that we can interpret reality perfectly from with our own five senses is very prideful, like – and and we got to realize I don't know everything, and I can I can see things wrongly probably. Like, I mean, good grief! You take a drug and you see things that don't exist. Like you think like, you know, think a little chemical, you know, going into your brain, you know, makes you see and perceive things that really aren't in reality at all. That maybe because we're so finite that maybe just when we're not even on drugs, we perceive things a little wrongly. Like, good grief! You know, think about getting a text message. You get a text message from somebody, and you interpret what they said, you know, totally wrong. Like, that's not what they meant at all. Like, you know, being absent from body language or tone of voice or anything like that, you can easily misinterpret things. So we can easily misinterpret reality. We can easily misinterpret our experience of our salvation. We can even misinterpret the very words of Scripture when we bring in our own biases and our own intuitions and our mm-hmm. own presuppositions and our own pre-understandings. Uh, so that's what we got to realize. Like, we got to realize, hey, i got to be open to being corrected. Right. And, you know, people will say, well, that's – you're hypocritical because you're not open to being corrected outside of your Calvinism. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, sure, you can say that, but that's, that's – uh, I, I don't I don't think that that's 
I don't think that that's actually true of our position. It's, it's not. Because our position is not that Kelvin was right. Right, exactly. Our position is not even that Luther was right. Right. We, we aren't... It just so happens that we agree that Luther and Kelvin... Understood when they, the Bible rightly. Yes. When yeah. they spelled out these doctrines, they were doing it from a biblical standpoint. If you can point me to a passage in the Bible that nullifies the passages that you and I have already read or that nullifies Romans 8 through 11 then and and says that we do seek after God we have the ability to choose God right then I will be more than happy to change my position exactly on it. exactly but it's, such a passage does not exist it does not exist and so I, I've heard it said well what about John 316 well what about it for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Where in that passage does that nullify the doctrine of election? I don't see it. Where is it? Like, yes, God does love the world. I will say yes, he does. Like, he, he loved, loved the world so much that he came down and humbled himself by taking on the form of a man. That's a radical love. So, amen. God does love the world. And God did send his son. And God did send his son. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Exactly. All but, of those things are true. And, and and so then we have to ask the question, okay, that's one of those texts that is, okay, you could say implicit. Okay, who is, it's not very clear how somebody believes in God in this text. It doesn't tell us how. It just says whoever does believe in him will have everlasting life. Amen. True. Biblical. That's scripture. But it doesn't answer the question how. So then we have to take into account all the other passages, and there's a plethora of them, like we said, that show us that it's not by our own power that we believe in God. It's that God, by his sovereign grace, makes us alive in Christ, regenerates our dead hearts, and, and gives us the faith. Right. And, and there's a that, chain, too. Just, there, there's a hermeneutic chain there, right? Right. Because, I mean, kind of like you described earlier. So, well... Well, who will believe in him? Well, when Nicodemus asked Jesus that question, yeah. like how how can I how can I have eternal life? Yeah. Jesus' response was, Well, you have to be born, born again. again. Well then 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 we look at well where what does that mean? Yeah. Well then we already read it from Peter. Right. Which Peter walked with Jesus Christ for three years. Right. Right. And then spent, you know, at least forty days with him in teaching after the resurrection. Right. At least 40 days. So here, so here you have Peter. Uh, and in Peter, which we just read, it is God who has caused us to be born again. Right. And there's that, there's that phrase. So there's a hermeneutical chain that we can point to that says that is how you interpret John right. 3.16. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit about um, – so th this is something I hear a lot. For instance, people won't say, well, I don't disbelieve the doctrine of election because it's in the scripture. I'd be stupid if I disbelieved that it was something, a true doctrine. But I see the elect as people who freely choose God. And so those who freely choose God by their own will, those are the people now considered the elect. So it would be in disagreement with what the Westminster Confession said that those the number of the elect is certain and unchangeable and uh perfect it was a number that was preordained by god before the foundations of the world so they would disbelieve that they would say no the elect is is those who by their own 
choice, choose God. Um, and then once they make a choice in God, in faith, and believe in him by their own choice, then God deems them an elect. But... Well, I, I think I think that we have to look at Paul's writings. Yeah, I, I think that Paul answers that very clearly. Number one, uh, as we already talked about in total depravity, Romans three: no one seeks after God. Right. No, not one. So right there, that falls that 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 falls apart on that argument alone. Right. Because uh, we don't have the free will to choose God. Well, I mean, I should I shouldn't say that we have the free will to choose God. We don't have the ability right. to choose God because we, of our sinful nature. We desire everything contrary to Him. We're not right. going to choose Him. We we have the free will to choose God. We have an inability to do so. And and I think that's where we get caught up is this concept that free will is this nigh all nigh unto all powerful concept. Um, ethos that that we have uh and and i think we have to really challenge our thinking in that regard um and like we have so much free will in our day-to-day lives do you look at i have the free will to get in my truck and drive work Anywhere in the United States, in the continental United States right now, right. I can get up and I can and I can just go because there's nothing that's going to stop me from making that choice if, if that's what I want to do. And while I'm doing it, Unless, it doesn't matter what the speed limit is. <laughs> I can drive 170 miles an hour. Not that my truck goes that fast, but I can drive 100 miles an hour down the highway. I can make the free choice to do that. Yeah. Right? I mean, we have so much liberty in this country that, that we think of – Free will, like, oh, this is a free country. I can do whatever I want. Right. Okay. Um, but, you know, another thing that I have the free will to do is play in the NFL, but I don't have the ability to do so. I, I, I can make the choice to go play yeah. in the NFL, nope. but no NFL team is going to hire me Sorry. to do it. Yep. You know, I just don't have the ability to do it. <laughs> right. And so uh, we have to check free will within the realm of ability. Uh, because just because we have the free will to do something does not mean that we that we actually can do it. Right. I mean, think about your truck analogy. You say maybe you you said that right now. Let's say you start to go, you know, to get into your truck and drive away, and I take a gun and shoot you in the leg, and you can't move. Right. Oh, looks like I just infringed on your free will. Look how free that was. Right. <laughs> like so, I mean, think how easy you can hinder that. Mm-hmm. I mean, even even God's free will, right? So God obviously has free will um, because he's making choices. We've outlined that very clearly today. God is choosing, and uh, God chose to create. Um, you know, God makes choices, has, has made choices all throughout history. But God is also limited um, by, number one, his holiness. God has an inability to sin. Right. God cannot choose to lie, for example. Right. He, he, so any free will is still checked by his inherent nature and ability. Right. And that's, that's what I'm driving at is free will is limited by our natures. Yes. Um, so that's point number one. That was a very long way to really try to hammer home the we don't seek God. Right. So we can't choose him. Right. Um, and, 
I mean, number so two. So the elect can't mean that. It can't right. mean it somebody can't mean, that, oh, it's it's something just – it's just a word to define those who freely choose God. Right. No. And and I think that, you know, really what what you're – what you're getting at uh, intentionally or not is, is that argument that, um, that God, God is reacting. God is looking. So he's sitting oh, yeah, in eternity past where I was going. and he's, and he's looking towards the future because God is, God is all knowing. And he, and he sees, Oh, this person will choose me. Therefore yeah. I'm, I'm reacting to that. Right. And I'm going to choose them. Right. But, uh, and so that, that idea comes from an interpretation of Romans eight twenty nine. Read it. So Romans eight twenty nine is often called the golden chain. Um, have you ever <laughs> I, heard that before? I've never actually heard that. Um, I got that. Never. I got that from R. C. Sproul in his commentary on uh, Romans um, eight. Uh, oh, on Romans, but called uh, the diamond chain chapter. Um, and so here it is, uh, Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, well, I, l- let me back up. I want to get the context of who he is, okay? So, um, Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit in intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, this this is like one of the most famous verses ever, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And now now we're into it, right? So, um, so verse 29, for those whom he, being God, foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let me break down this chain for you in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, that's number one. That's the first link in the chain. Number two is predestined. And that predestined is not salvific exactly it's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so it's predestined to glorification so we'll come back to that so here we have foreknew and predestined those whom he predestined he also called so that's the next link in the chain and those whom he called he also justified and that's that's the next link in the chain number four and then those whom he justified he also glorified that's number five amen so what are we talking about here when we say foreknew? Because that's number one. That is the question. And when we talk about that, this is not that God knows the outcome ahead of time and then reacts to it. This is not just a foreknowledge. Uh, in, right. In, in, in the Greek, that's not what this says at all. Right. Hermeneutical principles, original yep. language. <laughs> uh, in, in the Greek, it's... 
it's from the word prognoskio, right? Ooh, or, fancy. How do, you, how do you say I that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I have it in front of me, but I am not. I'm, in, I'm I, not a Greek scholar. I'm in Hebrew, right? I'm in seminary online, and I'm in Hebrew. I haven't started my Greek classes. So prognosko. I could tell you how to pronounce a Hebrew word, but not a Greek word yet. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so forgive my butchering of it, but um, <laughs> so Dr. John MacArthur has a commentary on it, and I have that in front of me, and I just kind of want to read from it. Um, and I mentioned that it's from MacArthur just to make sure that we give him credit because I, I don't want to just uh, outright copy his language without giving him credit for it. <laughs> so I'm going to read from his Romans um, 1 through 8 commentary. Uh, and foreknowledge is uh, from the noun form of the verb translated foreknew in our text. According to what Greek scholars refer to as Granville Sharp's rule, I don't know what that is, uh, it, if two nouns of the same case um, in this instance, plan and foreknowledge, are connected by the Greek word chi, which means end, and also have the definite article of the before them, or before the first noun, but not the second, the nouns refer to the same thing. In other words, um, it, this equates pre, this, uh, God's predestination plan or foreordination with his foreknowledge. So his plan and his foreknowledge are linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not God reacting. It is God has a plan, and his foreknowledge is linked with his plan. Mm-hmm. He knows that his plan is going to come true because it's his plan. If that and he sovereignly sense. controls. Right. So in addition to the idea of foreordination, foreordination the term foreknowledge also connotates love. God has predetermined divine love for those he plans to save. Uh, so this this word that I can't pronounce, this uh, prognoskio, prog, no, prog in osco, right? I, again, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> you sound like you're uh, putting a little bit of an Italian flair Yeah, on <laughs> I sure am. I, I'm not good at Greek. The boopa. <laughs> uh, a compound word that, that, or with meaning, beyond that of simply knowing beforehand. Throughout scripture, to know often carries the idea of special intimacy and is frequently used of a love relationship. In Genesis 4.17, the statement, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived, the word behind had relations with, is the normal Hebrew verb for knowing. And that is the same word translated chosen in Amos 3.2, where the Lord says to Israel, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. God knew Israel in the unique sense of having predetermined that she would be his chosen people. And Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, kept her a virgin, translates a Greek phrase meaning literally did not know her. Um, and that's in Matthew one twenty-five. And Jesus used the same word when he warned them, or when, when he warned, then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, in Matthew 7.23. So, uh, this foreknowledge is directly linked with with this love, mm. and that is backed up in Romans 9, when Paul is elaborating on this. So Paul introduces this concept of election in Romans 8, and then he goes through in the next several chapters... Uh, really anticipating arguments and encountering them. Mm -hmm. And he uses uh, the example of Rebecca 
and Isaac and Jacob. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Jacob and Esau. And in Romans 9, verse 12, it says, She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. That happened in Genesis before the children were even born. Right. God loved Jacob before Jacob was even born. He didn't have the option to make a choice right. to, to, to seek God. He didn't have the option at that point to uh, to be righteous or to do anything of merit because he wasn't even born yet. He didn't even exist. Right. And neither did Esau. But before they were even in existence. Yeah, and it turns out that Esau was ended up being the firstborn. Right. Which, according to the to the custom, the firstborn is the one who gets the inheritance. The yeah. firstborn is the one that, you know, that's just how it was. Right. But to show God, for God to show his election, that it's up to him who chooses. Not human constructs, not, mm-hmm. you know, human tradition, not our own wills, whatever it is that would constrain or bring things about in a certain way. God says, no, I, I chose before that they were even born that I will love Jacob, who actually ended up being the second born. And so he just flipped that all upside down and said, no, I still have the sovereign choice to choose who I want to choose. Whoa! Right. Whoa! And, and, and you, might, you might say at that point, well, that's not fair. Why would God hate somebody before they're even born, before they can do anything? Well, they're going to be born with a sinful nature, number one. Yes. But... You know, Paul anticipates that question. We continue to read on, right, in Romans nine fourteen. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on, on God's part? By no means. Yeah. That The Greek for that, by the way, for that phrase, by no means, uh, could be translated absolutely not. It, but it, even that doesn't do it justice. It is the strongest negative response in the Greek language. Yeah, it's like, don't even think about it. Right. And th- th- remember what Adam was saying earlier? God, you could say his his free will is constrained by his own nature. There is no possible way that God will do anything unjustly, unrighteously, un, you know, like unlovingly. Like everything that he does is good. He is the definition of good. There's no possible way that he could do anything not good. So to even th- that's why it's so strong. Like, like how could God do something that I perceive as unjust or wrong? Uh, no, he can't. No way. Don't even think about it. It's not possible. Back to hermeneutical principles. I'm just going to beat this dead horse here for a second. You know, one of the best hermeneutical principles you could use is starting having the absolute presupposition of the character of God. So when I read something that, through my own perception, I would think, oh, that that seems to make God unjust. Uh, reinterpret it because it's impossible for God to do any, anything unjust. And if I just can't quite figure out how it's possible, I have to realize that my finite mind is incapable of comprehending things that are far beyond my, my ability. Like, and I realize, no, God is able to do this. He's able to choose who he decides to choose. And he is just to do it. Like, I have to realize, I might not understand how it you know, all this, <coughs> this stuff that just seems to rub against my my intuitions. Mm-hmm. But I have to bow into the text. I have to bow to the, to the character of God. And Paul he says it. You know, I don't really actually have, you know, continue to read. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, I, um, 
I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay, yeah, because, yeah, sorry. Because you made a good point. I, like, it, this, this doctrine is so hard to absorb. And that's why Paul spends so much time on it in Romans, I think. Right. But even... Okay, so I, I jumped ahead to the middle of Romans 9 to emphasize the point of foreknowledge... It, it, like when, oh yeah, when, we were we were still when, in Romans eight. Yeah, in in Romans eight twenty nine, that first chain in that in that golden link for new does not mean foreknowledge, and then God, uh, and then God, yeah, uh, reacted to that. For new means that God chose. So you could say that for those whom He lovingly or in love elected. Uh, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Mm-hmm. Notice also that it's all in the past tense. Right. Uh, we are not glorified now. Right. But it is so certain to happen uh, that uh, that those uh, those who are elect, it is so certain that they will be glorified, that God speaks about it as if it's already happened. Yep. And th- that's a whole other thing, but that just absorb that for a second. Yeah. Think about that. It, it, he's not saying that I will glorify them. Yeah. It's not even a promise. It is, it is stated so strongly that it's, that it's so sure to happen that it, God can speak about it as if it already has right. happened. Here's a, I'm going to just going to, I'm going to, elaborate a bit more on that foreknowledge word. So let's just let's just entertain this reality that God did look and the, you know you've probably heard the 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 phrasing looked forward into the corridors of time or through the corridors of time. Looked forward. He he has this ability to f- somehow some way look into the future. And gain knowledge listen to what I'm saying here. Listen to how this sounds. Gain knowledge that he did not previously have. So he looks forward, gains that knowledge, and then with that new gained knowledge, now says, okay, these people, I I looked for it and I saw that these were the people that were going to choose me. And now I'm going to now say, or maybe I'm going to write them down in my book of life. What? Listen, Listen to this. God, in his character, in his nature, is, is omniscient, meaning he has all knowledge, comprehensive knowledge, knows all things. He's also eternal, and, and he's also immutable. So these things are, are all very cohesive, obviously. And so if God is eternal, that means he does not experience succession of time. He's outside of time. God is actually the one that created time. And so time uh, really is, is a... Is a is a series of moments, one moment after the another. It's successive. It's a linear. So we we are currently in one moment, and now boom, we're in another moment, and we can't go back in time to the previous moment. We're constantly moving forward in time. We're experiencing one moment at a time. It's successive. We are successive, and because we're successive, we're mutable. We're changing. We change in time. So God is outside of time because He's eternal, which means He does not experience succession of moments which also means his knowledge does not experience succession in moments, which means he knows all things in one, you could say, in one singular moment of vision. So to 
to pose the possibility that God looks forward in time to gain knowledge, one would imply that he is mutable and that he is changing because now he had this amount of knowledge and now he changed by gaining knowledge. That makes him mutable. If he's mutable, he is not God. God is immutable. His knowledge is unchanging. He has it all at one moment. And we could even get deeper. This is really what boggles my mind, and I love this stuff. But, you know, think about this. Think about Romans 8, you know, 28 through 30, what we read. This, he's speaking with a, like a certainty. Like, if, if, I, if I foreknow you, you are so certain to be glorified. God, in his eternal knowledge, sees all things together. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in human ways. Which means that in all reality, he, God, is in, a, in, a, in some mysterious ways, actually experiencing or seeing our glorified state, which is crazy. Right. Like he is actually, God is actually experiencing and seeing me and Adam and you, if you are a Christian, in a trillion years from now in heaven. Let's say, just say that. Let's say in a trillion years, there is the new heaven, new heaven and the new earth has come and it's here and we're experiencing it. At this moment right now, to us, God actually is experiencing that, truly. In his, in his knowledge, he knows it, he sees it, he's always seen it, it's always been present to his knowledge. That's crazy! So, what ends up happening when you try to explain these, you know, they are very mysterious mm -hmm. and hard to understand passages, but when you try to explain them, or bring them down to our level of experience and, and comprehension, what you end up doing is you end up taking away from God. You end up reducing him. You end up having a low view of God. To try to explain the word foreknowledge in this way or in the Arminianist, Arminianism way is what you end up doing is you just, you know, you, you, you make God changing. You make him mutable. You, you make him not eternal to explain it. Right. How about you just... Believe what the text says. Maybe accept that there's some mystery about it. And not totally take away from the character of God. Like, I mean, most people don't understand that's what they're doing. Right. But the problem is, is like, think about it though a little bit. Think about it. How does my belief in this doctrine affect the nature of God? That's a good question you could ask. Does this actually take away from the attributes of God? If it does, I'm likely misinterpreting it. Because mm -hmm. true doctrine will always glorify God. It will always exemplify God. It will, it will make God high and praiseworthy. And it, it, will, it will always uh, bring us to a point of awe and reverence. It will not make God seem, you know, human or normal or small or weak or... You know, never, never will true doctrine do that. True doctrine and true uh, theology will always make God grand and big because he's far bigger than we could ever even imagine him to be. Whoa, that gets me fired up, Adam. Yep. Ah! <laughs> Golly! Yeah. And, and if this doctrine makes you sad because, you know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I, I see clearly what Romans 8 is saying and what the other passages that we read are saying. Maybe a light bulb went off for you and you're like, well, I, I, this is maybe the first time you've heard it or maybe, maybe you haven't seen it laid out like this before and you're like, well, I, okay, I can no longer argue 
this is this is a true doctrine according to the scriptures and then you think about your friends and family who aren't saved and you're like well why was i chosen and and they weren't that that brings me grief uh you're not alone in that paul had grief paul had grief read it <laughs> in, in, in romans 9 so the same chapter that this is displayed in yeah so in so romans 8 after verse 30 it goes 30 uh, to 39, which is also a, a, a famous passage, but um, we're going to skip that because we're going to spend a lot of time on that passage when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. Because, yeah. uh, you know, again, all of these doctrines are logically connected. Um, so Paul basically says, after verse 30 and verse 31, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, And then he talks about really... Um, that God God holds our faith. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about that on a different episode. Uh, but in verse 9, he shifts back and he and he goes back to this election concept, uh, this, this doctrine of election. And he says in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, that being the Jews, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Hmm. Uh, Ooh, so, good scripture. So, I mean, if, if you're if you're sitting there going, well, you know, I, I'm very sad because, you know, I have sons or daughters or you know, parents or friends who, um, or maybe even a spouse and, and they, they aren't saved. Uh, is is it because they're not, they're they're not of the elect. They're not chosen by, by God. So they'll, they'll never be saved. Is that a possibility? Yes. And, and if, if that brings you grief, I, I would say that that's, that's okay. Yeah. Because that's exactly how Paul felt when he was writing about this, when he taught this. Right. Um, and Paul took great comfort from the doctrine of election, but it also brought him incredible grief. Right. I mean, he he calls it great sorrow and unceasing anguish, right. and he says and he says that, and he testifies, calling on the name of Jesus and the name of the Holy Spirit to to emphasize how much sorrow he has. Right. About Did, that. I mean, have you ever been to the point? I haven't yet. I have not yet achieved this 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 level of grief and sorrow for the lost as Paul has when he's writing this, where he would say that I wish I was accursed. Right. He's saying I wished I would go to hell if it meant that they wouldn't. What? I'm I I personally am not to that point yet, and I I do hope that I will get to that point where I have a burden for the lost as great as Paul did, because to think about having an eternal uh, separation from God to see others saved. That's amazing. So we gotta realize what Paul is saying. But in no way is what I think it's important to realize though, this anguish and this grief that Paul has for the lost, 
it's not a, a, a madness or an anger at God. And so God's doing something wrong or mean. I can't believe you would do this, God. No. Right. No, 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 no. He, he, Paul just totally you know, explained to us in the first chapters of Romans that we deservedly are, you know, are under wrath. Like We are wicked sinners, enemies of God, separated from him. We don't deserve God's grace. Like We deserve to be going to hell. Like He gets that. He understands that. Um, and so here's another interesting, I mean, I guess as an encouragement. God is sovereign in, in ways that we just can't quite comprehend. It's true. And God, this is hard to comprehend, but he, you could even say that he has preordained our prayers in some mysterious way. God will not, this is an interesting statement. Think about this. God will not act apart from how he has uh, predetermined, uh, well, what am I trying to say? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it wrong. Let me think about it. Adam, fill in. It, it's, it's, <laughs> I think what you're getting at is sort of what happened with a Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah, where we see this exchange between God and Abraham, where God comes and says, uh, look, get out of there. You, you got you to gotta get Lot out of there. I'm going to destroy this, these two towns. And Abraham's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Come on, show some mercy here. Yeah. Uh, if there's a hundred people that are saved, I forget the exact numbers, so forgive me if I'm getting it wrong. But you know, if there's if there's a hundred people that are saved, uh, then, then 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 don't destroy the town. And God's like, okay, I won't. And then Abraham's like, wait 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 wait, that's not enough mercy. If there's fifty, right? And again, forgive me, I'm, I'm misquoting it because I don't remember the exact numbers. But this is a, this is an exchange where we see. Abraham bartered down to a very, very low number. And as it turns out, the only righteous people there were, were Lot. Okay, I figured out what I was going to say. And God still destroys the town because God, and, and the thing was, God wasn't ever making a deal with Abraham no. that God had determined that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and all of Abraham's prayers in that exchange, as he's talking to God, as he's speaking with God, are all within. God knew that Abraham was going to try to make this deal. Right. And God still knew that the lowest that Abraham would plead for, that, that the number of, of righteous people there would still be less than the number that Abraham was going to plead for, and therefore God was still going to destroy the town. Yeah. Like, that, like nothing about God changed. Abraham didn't change God's mind in any way no. in those exchanges. So I guess what I was going to try to say is, it's so hard for me to collect this this thought. I gotta write it down somewhere so I don't misquote it. Basically, though, uh, God will not. Um, God, why does it keep it keeps escaping me? Sorry, people. Let's just say God will not bring about what He's ordained to bring about, apart from the means by which He's ordained to bring it about. If that makes sense. So if God has ordained that he's going to act according to the prayers of people, of his children, then prayer works. Prayer is something that we should do. It, it, God answers prayer. He ordained prayer. He created prayer. He ordained that he would respond to the righteous man's prayer, the man that has been justified by God, by him, by his sovereign choice. He's ordained also that he will 
act according to his prayer. It's not as though we're changing God's mind or we're giving God permission to act in a way that he does not have before we give him permission. No, no, God has ordained sovereignly our prayers. He knows our prayers before we even say them. It's in his knowledge before I even exist that I would pray such a prayer, you know, at this time for this person. Mm -hmm. So we got to realize that the prayer for lost loved ones is very powerful. And it's very well, you know, it's, it's true that God answers prayer. It's likely that nobody has been saved apart from the prayer of somebody, if that makes sense. God is that sovereign, that he has orchestrated and ordained in some way that everybody that is an elect would have been prayed for by somebody before them. Right. I mean, that's very possible, and that we're saying that God is that sovereign. He's that in control of everything. So pray away. It works. It's mm -hmm. good. You should be praying. It actually, God actually has a, sorry if I'm mumbling, I just put a mint in my mouth. <laughs> God, uh, no, I lost my thought. <laughs> God's in control. God's in control. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. I took the long way around. But, well, we're like, I think we're at an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, okay. Well, we still got got a whole bunch to do because... We'll uh, make this a part two. Yeah, well, maybe even a part three. Um, <laughs> well, th th this is this one's important because I, I think there's still some outstanding questions here. There's outstanding questions that Paul anticipates in Romans nine. Yep. And then in Romans ten. Yep. And we definitely need to talk about those. Um, and, yeah, there's because, still a lot of objections and yep. uh, to this doctrine that we just sh we should really spend time mm -hmm. clearing up. Yeah. Like we don't want to just we don't want to just focus on the verses that you know support our position. Or we don't don't want to just focus on the arguments that will you know support our position and just totally ignore all the other ones that people have made for you know hundreds of years. We want to talk about mm -hmm. uh, and and I think I think chief among those we we sort of begin to talk about is there injustice on God on God's part? Absolutely not. There is not. We've been talking about that, um, and we can we can finish the reading from Romans nine where Paul answers that question, um, and then in. Romans nine nineteen, um, Paul says, "Will you say to me then, why does God still he, being God, still find fault for who can resist His will?" So Paul's saying, "Well, you, you know, because you might be asking the same question. Well, if God chooses who He's going to save, how can He possibly find fault with the sinners because He He locked them into sin? So so how is?" How can God find fault in any of that? Because it's only by God's will. So maybe you're you're thinking about that. And then, of course, there's there's a little rule that I have when it comes to election. That if you talk about election, you have to talk about evangelism. Because one of the biggest complaints and arguments that's leveled against the doctrine of election is, well, if God chooses who he's going to save and they're going to be saved no matter what, then you don't have to go out and evangelize. What's the purpose of evangelism? Right. And the same argument well, for prayer. What's the purpose of prayer? Right. Well, let me tell you, the purpose of evangelism is multifold. And Ooh, that's what yes. and that's what Woo! Romans 10 is all about. Woo! Paul Paul and Paul knew that you were going to ask that question and level that that argument uh in in the first century when he wrote this book around 80 90. Yeah, and he, God knew it before like, before 80 existed. 90 like it was like 80, 60-something, I think, when he wrote Romans. But, uh, like, Paul knew that that was going to come up, and he wrote an entire chapter about it. 
Yes. So, uh, so you know, we definitely will back, talk about that next Tune week. back in for that stuff. That's going to be good. I tell you what, the doctrine of election is one of the biggest motivators for me in my personal evangelism, without a doubt. So tune back in. Thank you for listening. Thank you.